Hey guys, this is Mark Scarborough, and this is the podcast Walking with Dante, and this is part two of a podcast that started last time. This is a podcast that is the case for Francesca. If you don't know what I'm talking about, <laughs> then you got to go back and find us and catch up to us. We are walking slowly through Dante's masterwork comedy. We are in Inferno, the first canticle, Inferno, Hell. We're in Canto 5, which is the second ring of Hell. And we're at the very end in which one of the sinners who is floating, <laughs> floating, who's being bashed about, how's that, by the winds of lust, comes out and speaks to Dante and Virgil. It is Francesca. And in the last episode of this podcast, I built a case against Francesca. You will notice that that entire case I built is without the poet's help. The poet is never at any moment in this entire passage saying to me, and this is what it meant, and this is what it meant. I'm having to deduce Francesca's guilt in lust from her words without the poet's help behind me. It is a very strange little bit of opacity that occurs here in that I don't have a voice that's stepping forward and helping me figure out how to adjudicate who these people are the way I might have had it in limbo or even amongst the neutrals. So because of that, one can build a case for Francesca. One did build a case for Francesca in the 19th century. She was seen as almost a Byronic hero, a romantic heroine, a Byronic hero larger than life, one who <laughs> spits on her own fate and seems unaffected by the tragic horror that goes on around her, but is driving forward to her own point. That interpretation is now largely out of favor, and I'm not going to bring it back, but I am going to build a case for Francesca. So before I do that, I'm going to read the passage. O gracious and benevolent living creature who comes in the doom-filled air to visit us, the ones who stain the world with blood, if the king of the universe were our friend, we would pray he grant you peace, because you have displayed so much pity over our bad twists of fate. All the things that it pleases you to speak or hear, we really want to hear and speak with you while the wind has quieted, as now. I was born in that land where the river Po and all its tributaries slow down and descend to find peace in the sea. Love that quickly catches fire in the gentle heart seized this one with me because of my gorgeous body that has been taken from me and the way it was taken still hurts me. Love that doesn't stop anyone loved from loving seized me with such a strong passion for the sky that, as you see, it hasn't abandoned me yet. Love drove both of us to one death. Kaina waits for the man who blotted out our lives. These words were blown from them to us. When I heard these scarred souls, I bowed my head and kept it down until the poet said to me, what are you thinking about? When I could reply, I began, alas, how many sweet thoughts, how much desire drove these two to the sorrowful pass. Then I turned to them to speak again and began, Francesca, all this pain makes me weep with sorrow and pity. But tell me, in the time of those sweet sighs, by what means and how did love make you cognizant of your dubious desires? And she to me, there is no greater sorrow than to remember our happy times in the middle of misery, as your teacher knows. But if you really want to know the originary root of our love that you were so drawn to, I will tell it as one who both weeps and tells. One day... 
just for a pleasure, we were reading about how love got the better of Lancelot. We were alone and without any suspicions. That reading made us lock eyes more than once and robbed the color from our faces. But on a single point, we were defeated. When we read how the much desired smile was kissed by such a great lover, this guy, who will now never be divided from me, kissed me on my mouth, trembling all over. That book and the one who wrote it were our Galeotto. That day, we didn't read any further. All the time this spirit said this, the other one beside her wailed, such that pity overcame me as if I died, and I collapsed as a dead body collapses. There's Francesca's speech again. We had it in the last episode. We have it here again. Let's look at it carefully in another light. Number one, remember I told you that they are light on the wind. Dante calls them down and they come down as doves and he points to them and he calls them light on the wind. And I said, is that because they're lightweight bouncing around on the wind and not heavy historical figures or is it their attitude to the wind? And you know what? I don't care what any modern critic says. Francesca is bigger than her fate. And in fact, she is so large that she has been preserved for history in this text. Listen, Francesca Tapolenta and her murder by her husband and her illicit love affair with her brother-in-law would never be remembered without this passage. This passage holds her here and her voice, created admittedly by the poet, has risen above the text itself. She's held here, bigger than her own fate. Because her story is so big, part of building the case for Francesca is building the case against the poet. So, as I go forward, I just want to admit that, that I'm headed to a place where I'm building a case against the poet Dante and for Francesca. Okay, so, that's my first point. She does seem bigger than her fate. My second point, when she starts in, what we said was flattery last time. Maybe there's another way to see it. Oh, gracious and benevolent living creature, she says, who comes in the doom-filled air to visit us, the ones who stained the world with blood. Remember I said last time that she doesn't seem to be taking any responsibility for her fate, and that is part of the case against her. Well, that line, the ones who stained the world with blood, that seems to be a recognition of her fate. She seems to know what happened. In fact, she seems there oh, to know that she is condemned for something. Now, we may on this a little bit because, you know, she says the ones who stained the world with blood. She's not that big a figure. She's not, she's not a holy Roman emperor. She didn't stain the world with blood. She's not this grand giant figure. She may have stained the floor of her house with blood, not the world. So she may be overstating her case a little bit there, but I still will say that she seems to understand her fate, the ones who stained the world with blood. So it's not that she's not taking responsibility or that somehow she thinks she's above her fate. She doesn't. Right there. There's an admission of it. She goes on. If the king of the universe were our friend, we would pray he grant you peace because you've displayed so much pity over our bad twist of fate. She seems to, again, king of the universe were our friend. She seems to understand the Christian judgment that has come upon her. She doesn't seem to quibble about it at all. She then says the whole bit. As I did last time about, you know, please, whatever it pleases you to speak in here. We really want to speak in here. Well, the wind is quieted down. And I 
positive that that was her attempt to control the story. But notice what she does next. I was born in that land where the river Po and all its tributaries slow down and descend to find peace in the sea. This is my third point in Francesca's favor. She establishes her poetic creds. That's beautiful. I was born in that land where the river Po and all its tributaries slow down and descend to find peace in the sea. This notion of the Po coming down into the marshlands, spreading out, and then dissolving into the sea, find peace in the sea after its labor of coming down from on high. I mean, this is really gorgeous stuff. And she establishes her poetic creds in a poetic piece of work. Dante the poet has created her to be as good a poet as he is. Gorgeous stuff. But notice what that's about. That's about the river Po and all that water dissolving into the larger hole, right? It's coming down, it's spreading out into all the estuaries and all the tributaries and all the little rivulets, and then it's dissolving in the sea, which is the one thing she does not do. Her voice does not allow her to dissolve in the sea. Remember, I said there may be a chiasmus in this entire canto. And going all the way back to that big metaphor, that double simile, we had the starlings and the cranes. And then I said, maybe we have the cranes as the noble exemplars, Achilles, Helen, Paris. And now we're to the starlings, the commoners here. And I talked about how starlings go up in the air. I think I compared them to herring, right? <laughs> that they go up like a school of herring and that they're this giant, undulating thing in the air. Well, in that case, the individual starlings are dissolved into the hole in the same way that the Po is dissolved here into the sea as a whole and finds its peace in a kind of mm, anonymity as it just dissolves and you can no longer tell what part is the Po and what part is the sea. Well, guess what? This starling, Francesca, doesn't dissolve. Her voice, or the voice the poet has given her, keeps her an individual. She is not slowing down and descending to find peace in the sea. Rather, she is speaking up and telling her own story. Fourth piece of the case for Francesca. She goes on into that big nine lines about love. Love that quickly catches fire in the heart. Love that doesn't stop anyone. Love from loving. Love drove both of us to one death. All that bit about amor that I talked about. And last time I talked about amor. She's not saying lust. She's saying amor, the Christian virtue. Love. Well, you know what? If she's slipping between lust and love, it is a slippage that has been established in this entire canto. Both Virgil and Dante have attributed the motives of the lustful to love over and over again. I pointed it out to you. And if she's slipping here into love rather than lust, she's she's following in some good poetic tradition of Dante and Virgil. She's doing exactly what they've been doing all along. She's fudging the line. She's blurring the line between lust and love. And You can point it out here as she's doing it, but they're doing it too. I realize this is both ciderism at its best, but she's doing it too. So why condemn her when you don't condemn them? Condemn them then. Condemn Virgil. Condemn Dante. They're confused. They can't quite make sense of it. So this slippage is well established in the text. Fifth point. 
You know, when I read the comedy for the first time in grad school a long, long time ago, I was so shocked that lust was the second rung of hell. Let me get a little personal and tell you. I was born in 1960. I was born in June of 60, which means I was born while Eisenhower was still president of the United States. Kennedy hadn't even been elected yet. He would be elected that November. So I was born in June of 60. Uh, you know, the United States was still a fairly Victorian place. It might still be in pockets. But at the time, especially in the southern part of the United States where I was from, we were very still Victorian and mannerly and white glovey and bridge with ladies playing bridge with white gloves and the whole bit. That's how I was raised. And so I was shocked to see lust so high up. I mean, the sins are going to get worse and worse and worse and worse. And we've passed through limbo. And then the first sin we come to is lust. As in a Victorian mindset, you would expect lust to be way down, way down there. But it's not. Why? Because lust is closest to love. It is closest to love. And love in Christian theology, is the nature of God. So God is love, as the New Testament says to us. So here that lust is near the top, these are the people who are the closest. Mm, they've just missed out on love by a little bit. And let me say this about that. Francesca is, oh, she comes in for so much vitriol from critics, condemning her. Maybe there's just a little bit of male misogyny going on here because she is often pointed out as one of the worst, slipperiest, most difficult sinners in all of hell. There's a couple more, Ferenata and then Ulysses, yes, Odysseus from Homer, but they're also slippery, but she's given so much weight as if, look at her, look at what she's trying to do. She's trying to absolve herself from her guilt. I wonder, in the modern obsession with Francesca to pull her out of being a romantic heroine, is there a little bit of misogyny running underneath that? Because in fact, what her sin is, is lust. And lust is the sin that is just almost godly. When we get up to the top of Mount Purgatory, right before the Garden of Eden, which sits on the very top of it, we're going to find that the last sin you have to purgate before you enter the Garden of Eden is lust. It's the very last sin because it's closest to heaven. It's almost there. It's just a little bit of a twist away from the very nature of God, which is love. So again, maybe Francesca is damned, but maybe she's not as damned <laughs> as some of the other figures below her. That's ridiculous. She's just as damned as they are. But I mean, maybe she's not quite as dangerous as some of the figures below her. Moving on to the passage, the pilgrim says, when I heard these scarred souls, I bowed my head and kept sitting down until the poet said to me, what are you thinking about? This is what I find so interesting. She has called the poet on his game right here in the case for Francesca because Virgil steps out and asks the pilgrim, why are you so silent? What are you thinking about? She has, how do I say this? She has revealed that the pilgrim and the poet turn to classical literature for answers rather than theological literature. It is Virgil who says, what are you thinking about? And if we read Virgil, not as an allegory of human reason, but as an allegory of the great uh, monolith of classical literature, then she has called the poet out on his game as being too Virgilian. This should be the point. 
were the pilgrim more educated in a Christian framework in which he would be thinking theologically? He's not. Instead, the turn away from the overwhelming rhetoric that she employs is back to classical literature, not to theological literature. And in making this happen, Francesca has overwhelmed the text. I think there's a crack right here in the text. And we see that the poet is more likely to turn to classical literature than uh, the New Testament, than the Church Fathers, than Augustine, than Thomas Aquinas. Do I think the poet Dante back behind all this intends it? I'm not sure. Do I think that this is what's happening in the text? Mm, In the case for Francesca, it is. So, the pilgrim says, when I could reply, and began, alas, how many sweet thoughts, how much desire drove these two to such a sorrowful pass. I turned to them to speak again and said, Francesca, all this pain makes me weep with sorrow and pity. But tell me, in the time of those sweet sighs, by what means and how did love make you cognizant of your dubious desires? Dubious. And I made so much about desire and love last time, but I blew right past this word dubious. The pilgrim doesn't seem confused by the nature of her sin. In fact, the pilgrim seems right here to indicate that her desire was flawed in some way because the sin of lust. So all of that heavy condemnation that comes down on all of them and that they're confusing love and lust and all that stuff, they are and maybe they're not. What you notice here is that the passage is slipping left and right. It's slipping right through our hands at each moment. And I would argue that Francesca is such a large figure that even the poet sitting back behind the text is unable finally to control her in the text. While she may work to control the pilgrim, the poet is losing his grip on her and the passage is slipping several times and we're slipping back to lust and forward to love. It's difficult to find the place where it actually lands. And that, I think, is actually a mark for Francesca. It's a mark for the poet, too, because he, the poet, has created a figure large enough that she is actually starting to escape his text. Moving on. And she to me, there is no greater sorrow than to remember our happy times in the middle of misery, as your teacher knows. But if you really want to know the originary root of our love that you were so drawn to, I will tell you as one who both weeps and tells. One day, just for pleasure, we were reading. And last time we made a big deal in the case against her about just for pleasure. But here I want to just stop on reading. Francesca, and Paolo, but Francesca is a reader. That is actually a point in her favor. She is literate. And she can read text. Last time I posited this whole thing on, uh, you know, what she's reading is for pleasure and it's, it's lightweight literature and blah, 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 and not the comedy, which is heavyweight literature and all that stuff. We're not Virgil. It's not the Aeneid. It's just a romance about Lancelot and Guinevere. But you can't miss the fact that she's a reader. She's the thing that Dante the poet wants. Dante the poet is writing this so it will be read. And here... Oh my gosh, we have this sinner 
on the wind, who is in fact herself quite a literate person, reading very au courant literature about how, she, about how, as she says, how love got the better of Lancelot. We were alone without suspicions. Reading made us lock eyes more than once and rob the color of our faces, but on a single point we were defeated. And then watch this. When we read how the much-desired smile, Guinevere's, was kissed by such a great lover, Lancelot, this guy, Paolo, who will never be divided from me, kissed me on my mouth, trembling all over. I want to just stop right there. This is Dante's response when he sees Beatrice in the new life, the Vita Nuova, the only completed book Dante has under his belt at this point. When Dante writes the new life, the Vita Nuova, it is a story of the meetings with Beatrice. And there's one particular meeting in which Dante comes into a party. There's a lot of women present. It's a house party. And he comes in. There's a lot of women present. And there's Beatrice amongst them. And Dante starts shaking so bad in Vita Nuova that he's uncontrollable. I, I mean, he has to lean against a wall to stop from shaking. My point is, this seems the exact reaction Paolo has that Dante has to Beatrice. So here, we should say that Dante is running right underneath this text. I mean, Paolo's reaction to her is that she so incites him to love that he trembles and he kisses her. He does the thing, in other words, that Dante doesn't do. This is what seems to be important. You can read this passage as a long indictment, This, especially the Lancelot and Guinevere bit, as a long indictment about um, literature. You know, the pilgrim realizes and the poet behind him realizes the absolute gravity of writing something that it can trip people up into hell and watch out. Okay, fair enough. And that's all probably there. Trembling all over, that book and the one who wrote it were all Galeotto. And I explained last time about that, about being the intermediary between illicit love and all that. But you know what? The passage doesn't stop there. There's one more line. That day we didn't read any further. That's where the passage ends. So many literary critics want it to end on Galeotto and the book. It doesn't. It ends right here of them going to bed. This is where the passage ends. And this is what makes the poet and the pilgrim, <laughs> maybe both together, faint. Listen, it's not the reading. It's the sex. It is, how do I say this? It is the loss. It is Paolo crying. It's realizing that Paolo and Francesca have done what the poet Dante and Beatrice will never do. And here it strikes me as so important that that's where the passage ends. If it just ended at the book, if it ended with that book and the one who wrote it were our Galeotto, and then, you know, all of a sudden we see Paolo wailing and the pilgrim passes out, I'd say, sure, it's all about the dangers of literature. And that probably is in there too. But honestly, it seems that what Francesca has driven finally the entire story too is that line that day we didn't read any further and let me say something else about that while i'm sitting right here when francesca goes into that big speech about love love did this and love did that it's nine lines long nine is the number of beatrice we know that from the new life the from the vita nuova 
Dante tells us again and again in the Vita Nuova that nine is Beatrice's number. He goes into long explanations about nine and square roots and three and all that bit. But we are told with no doubt that nine is Beatrice's number. And here is Francesca with nine lines on love. Now listen, does every nine line segment in the comedy have to do with Beatrice? No, of course not. But in this case, nine lines about love, it's just hard to see it otherwise. It's hard to see Beatrice not running underneath this in incredibly fundamental ways. Dante's unfulfilled desire for Beatrice must find an adequate outlet, and it hasn't yet. And she has called out the projection, the transference, the creation of the work of art. She has called it out by coming finally to a moment of desire fulfilled, the thing that Dante the poet will never have with Beatrice. And she has called him on his game. Essentially, she's got him right there. Again, sure, it's about books. Of course, it's about that book. And they read it and the dangers of literature. But it's also about a couple who fulfilled their desires in the face, not of a pilgrim who's walking along, who is overwhelmed with pity, but a poet sitting behind him whose fundamental desire was finally never consummated. No wonder the pilgrim collapses like a dead body without any corporeal sensation. The body goes dead. Why? Because it's about unfulfilled desire. The body has gone dead and the pilgrim has collapsed in a heap onto the ground. Okay, what are we going to make about all this? What are we going to make about this figure, this canto, all of this? It's so wild. Think about this canto. Let's just take a look back for a second. Think about Minos, that we started with a sure judge. Minos has no problem judging, right? His tail is... <laughs> completely accurate it wraps around him however many times it needs to go and down you go to the ninth circle or the or the fifth circle the fourth circle down i'm gonna tell you that as we go forward there's gonna be a problem i'm laughing because there's a problem with minos you're gonna find out that the seventh eighth and ninth circles are divided into sub circles especially the eighth and so when minos tail wraps around him does it go you know eight and one-tenth times or eight and three-tenths times? It can't. It can't, too. Because it, the ninth circle's basically got four different divisions inside of its subset. So what does it do? Go nine and a quarter around him or nine and three-quarters around him? I, to me, this is an indication that Dante is changing his mind about the circles of hell, but we'll get to that in a future episode. But for now, let's just say we started with a sure judge who can make absolutely dead on, spot on judgments of the damned. And we end up here in which we can't make a final judgment in the passage and in which we are finally blocked from a full interpretation of the passage itself. And we are caught up on the wind with this figure who seems to defy her own fate. So while they may be securely judged into a ring of hell, mm, this one, 
this one rides light on the wind and this one comes up above her fate and ultimately i would argue that this one is such an unbelievable creation of the poet that she is able twice to call the poet on his own game one you're thinking too much about classical literature when virgil speaks up and two i got to do what you never got to do so both instances are a moment in which the poet behind it is mm, revealed. Think about further back, just not just Minos and the exemplars on the wind and then Francesca, but think all the way back to Canto 4. Canto 4 was about the glories of literature. Canto 5, here we end up at the dangers of literature. Now you can quibble on this and you can say Canto 4, Limbo, Horace, Lucan, right, all of them, Homer, Ovid, that whole crowd back in limbo is the glories of classical literature. And this is the dangers of contemporary literature, Lancelot, Guinevere, medieval romance. And that may be true, but we've still shifted perspective. And after all, Dante is not writing in Latin as Ovid, as Virgil. He's not writing that literature. He's writing in the common tongue, in medieval Tuscan. He's writing the soft and gentle words of Beatrice's speech. He's writing in the low style. So he's writing more in the style of Lancelot and Guinevere. He may not be writing romance, but he's writing more in that kind of style than he is in the giant classical high style that he's so lauded in limbo. And yet here we come down to the moments of the dangers of mm, that kind of literature itself. Think also of this. This is a windy canto. <laughs> there's winds blowing everywhere, right? So the canto is full of the wind. And there's all kinds of ways that the wind is like lust and it's blowing them around. And there's even some um, vulgar suggestions about how wind works and uh, how wind works sexually. It's a whole medieval medical thing. You can, <laughs> we'll save that for another day. But there's all that kind of suggestion going on behind the text. But here's what I want to say. It's chaotic. Wind is unbelievably chaotic, and this canto from Minos through the exemplars on the wind to the doves to the cranes to the starlings to Francesca to Paolo to the poet behind it all, my gosh, where's the stable ground to stand on? Where is it? There's a few places. Minos may be pretty stable because although he may try to get between the pilgrim and Virgil, he seems a pretty sure judge, and Virgil's catalog of the lustful may be pretty stable. He seems to name them off in a certain order. And we get a moment of theological clarity when Semiramis, uh, you know, the libito felicito, and when she makes her lust licit, there may be ooh, kind of theological certainty right there and orthodoxy. But overall, the canto moves further and further into confusion. And when we finally get Francesca's big speech, we have been lofted onto the wind too. And we have been lofted into a place where we are hearing about someone reading who is tripped into lust. And, you know, it's a mise en abime. We're reading about a reader who reads her way into damnation as we read our way into salvation through the comedy. And so we're kind of standing here looking vertiginously down onto the act of reading in a kind of hall of mirrors at the end. And the canto, all those winds, surely we feel them bashing us about. Canto 5 is an astounding piece of work. It may finally escape its poet, 
if the poet is in control of everything, even that moment when he says, way back now, I, I begin to feel the notes of sadness where I marked that it was in the present tense. And I said, I think this is a little bit from the poet after we step away from Minos. Even if the poet is revealing himself in the canto, it is unbelievably complicated. Here's what I think. I think you should go back and read Canto 5. Read the whole thing through. It is an astounding piece of work. How we get from Minos to Francesca, it's mind-boggling. It is worthy of a slow walk. It shows the art that is being created. It shows the freedom of the art. If the poet is free enough to create a character that finally overwhelms the art itself, wow, that is a lot of freedom out of the poet, a lot of freedom to let his imagination go as far as it wants to go. And even more than that, the canto itself is so exquisite. Oh, my gosh. From Minos's almost nonverbal, he does say a little bit, but the nonverbal wrapping of his tale to this giant story, this novelle that ends it from Francesca and the motivations behind her and the complexity that she represents as a character, perhaps at this point more complex than any character we've seen, including Dante the Pilgrim and Virgil. She is the most fully realized character we have yet seen. Now, over the course of the entire comedy, of course, the Pilgrim is going to become the most fully realized character, and Virgil will become increasingly realized in the next few cantos. But right now, as we're standing right here, hmm, it seems to me that Francesca is worth much, much thought. Not just reading for pleasure, but thinking about what's actually here. And from here, oh my gosh, the third circle. So subscribe to this podcast. We're moving down next time into the third circle of hell. And if you thought this circle was wild, wait, oh my gosh, wait till you see what happens in Canto 6. It gets even wilder and hairier, and the interpretations get more difficult as it swirls around. Oh, we are heading, heading, heading out, finally to a place where Inferno will seem to break, and then we'll start again, but we'll start in a different way. Oh, we're heading all there, but next time, just get ready. If you thought Minos de Francesco was difficult, wait till you hit Chaco in the next episodes of Walking with Dante. Subscribe, rate it, drop me a comment. I'd love that. And come back so that we can keep walking with our Pilgrim and Virgil across the known universe.